from Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW. This is the Pavacit. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to the Pavacit wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guest, please visit our website at thepavacit.com and check out our social media pages. What is academic freedom? That is the question I explore in this episode by interviewing Dean Sasha Coupe, the Associate Dean for Mission Innovation at Loyola University Chicago School of Law, and Zach Greenberg, Senior Program Manager for the Foundation of Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE for short. In the interest of time, this series will be two parts. In the first episode, you will hear from Dean Coupe. Our conversation covers a lot of ground because we discuss the development of the mission at the university and the anti-racism development at the law school. We then jump into our conversation about academic freedom. Uh, But first, we start with Dean Coupe's background because as we approach the question of academic freedom, we must recognize that we all bring our whole selves to the table, including professors and deans. I originally thought to do this episode in the early part of of last semester due to fallout from the news that there would be two journal articles published in the Loyola Law Review that took an anti-LGBTQ plus stance. Unfortunately, I was unable to pursue this episode last semester. However, I had it back on the docket to complete this semester. On Monday, February 20th, this semester, Another student group invited Tyson Langhofer, Senior Counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom on campus, to discuss, as it was framed, quote, DEI and its effects on academic freedom. Dean Coupe was invited to be part of that discussion with Mr. Langhofer to flush out the idea of what academic freedom is and, of course, what DEI is and how, again, in their framing, affects academic freedom. Students protested that uh, Mr. Langhofer was invited to campus in the first place since the organization for whom he works is listed as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center for their virulent views on LGBTQ issues. I was in attendance at this discussion, but I want to be clear, I, and no, I had no part in, in planning or execution of the event. I note that because you will hear Dean Coupe reference this discussion a few times in our conversation. A few other notes on this episode. Later in our conversation, we reference a racial covenant case, and of course we are referring to Shelley v. Kramer, the 1948 Supreme Court case. Additionally, I just go on to describe uh, a case that I could not remember the name for, and of course I am referring to Johnson v. McIntosh. This case took place in 1823, which was not, as I suggest, during the first session of the Supreme Court, which started February 1st, 1790. And lastly, I just want to remind everyone that the views expressed on this podcast are not the views of Loyola University, the Law School, the Pavacit, or any of its affiliates. The views expressed are solely those of the person who expressed them. So we will jump right into the middle of a conversation where Dean Coupe and I are discussing whether an employee should or can be held to account for the faults of the organization for whom they work. Specifically, we jump right 
where I am arguing that perhaps students are more responsible for advancing the mission of the school because we give it financial resources in a way that employees are not. Dean Coupe will push back and will make reference to the event on February 20th and her discussion with Tyson Langhofer. Enjoy. We're giving the school $70,000 a year. Uh, so in some ways, we are furthering the mission of the organization, including the Catholic Church, um, in a way that you could argue, that, you know, you as an employee of the institution are not, since you're not in a, uh, a uh, your role isn't for, well, I may actually, we could talk, we'll talk about it in the interview, but maybe you are in some small part in your specific role furthering it. But as a professor, you're not necessarily furthering like the, Jesuit teachings because you're talking about you know family law or you know I, I mean, actually I I would I would push back and say no and, and sort of somebody was observing like what a week it's been for you that Friday like Friday I won an award it was announced that I won this national award for the best LGBTQ scholarship in the country um, so for scholars receive this award annually and I, I won. So I work for a Catholic university and I won an award for scholarship that advances the interests, the rights, protection for LGBTQ youth. Yeah. I wrote this article and in the footnote, the very first footnote is a note of gratitude to my institution whose Jesuit values inspired my commitment to this work. Mm. Um, and I offered this scholarship to the president, right? To the provost, yeah. to effectively the board of trustees that includes Jesuits on this, this governing board yeah. with a request to be promoted to full professor. And they approved that, right? So I, I wrote this scholarship and it was that scholarship that actually got me promoted. And then I was subsequently promoted again to the position of assistant dean of mission yeah. after writing this work. Like after it has been known, right? Actually nationally, it's it's not a secret, right? It's, it's publicly um, out there that that is my scholarly agenda. Right. This university says under the umbrella of academic freedom. Yeah. You, you may do, like, if this is your interpretation of our values in action, we not only support you, we will promote you. So I actually do think in a way, right, I get paid to teach, paid to be this administrator, but paid to also set aside tons of time to pour my heart into scholarship that we hope the yeah. purpose of this award is actually to cull that scholarship on LGBTQ issues um, and disseminate that to policymakers, to judges, try to shape policy and, and laws and judicial decision-making in ways that we think, right, yeah. that issues should be addressed. You know, I always think of things in like a supply and demand slope uh, or curve, and there's things that move along the curve, and then there's things that shift the curve completely. And I feel like you're expanding or shifting the curve on what Catholic thought is on an area, perhaps not changing the diaspora, if that's even a correct term to use for the Catholic Church. But the fact that within the context of our institution, 
saying, here's your scholarship as you're saying and your interpretation of our mission as Jesuit institution. And we like it, we love it. Here's a, a, two promotions <laughs> uh, and you get to stay with us forever. Um, so yeah, no, that's that's a fair way to look at it. I've never felt silenced. I mean, it, it was sort of ironic. And I, I mean, it wasn't an accident that I was selected, that I was invited. Yeah on that other side i i'm not the dean of dei right but i am the dean of mission and it's known that i'm the dean of mission who writes on lgbtq issues yeah. <laughs> so i think it was maybe i mean in a cynical way i could say that it was intended to provoke a different kind of debate yeah and i declined to actually debate i requested instead that it be more of a dialogue yeah. Because I didn't see these as um, absolutely in opposition, right. but that recognize that, yeah, they can be intention. Yeah. That from our perspective, it's our values right. that drive us when, when we recognize that there's a tension, there's a way in which we conceive of what learning looks like in a classroom setting right. that really has us in many respects favoring what what lives under the umbrella of DEI, right? right? To the degree that it allows us to be caring of the person, yeah. to the degree that it allows us to lean into, you know, the relationships that we think really define what the learning experience at, a, at an Ignatian college or university should be. Yeah. Um, that's how we're going to end up resolving the tension. It, it isn't that academic freedom isn't an absolute. And so I, I actually think that if anything, we disagreed maybe in degrees, right. but not as a of principle. Right. That is certainly fair. And because we're talking about it, I'm going to transition into talking about the mission and, and your role. But before we even do that, just tell us a little bit about you, because you have a fascinating background, I, I think, or certainly interesting background. Well, I guess I'll pick up like at the very, very beginning. So I am the daughter of Haitian immigrants. My, my parents came in the 50s. My mother's family was exiled, uh, really sort of just at some point in time, in fact, before I was born, had no, had they were stripped of their citizenship and they were not yet American citizens. They were effectively without any citizenship wow. for some period of time until they became American citizens. Uh, my father came to study uh, that sort of classic, you know, he worked at a hardware store while he was going to college. My parents met at a, like a protest party. <laughs> um, they were protesting the CIA's recruitment of Haitians. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that experience of being, um, a, I think technically it might be called second generation, but a, essentially a first generation American yeah. and not having sort of a context for understanding anything about how the world works. I think it's just always made me a really curious observer. And something of an almost an interpreter as well, because I'd have to come home and sort of interpret for my parents this whatever dynamic of American culture. Yeah. You know, I grew up in on the East Coast. I spent my formative years, I'll say, here in the Midwest. I went to college in St. Louis. That was an, a fascinating, like, cultural experience. I, I'd never, I mean, to me, it's the, it's the closest I've come to living in the South. Yeah, I thought I found my passion. I, I was originally going to be a physician. So I was pre-med in college yeah. and then trying to, as I often do, cram as much into my life as possible. I tried to take organic chemistry over the summer mm. 
in a, in a condensed course, <laughs> my brain literally melted. And I decided there's something to the fact that I'm not getting, like I'm not performing well in this space. Mm. And think, I think I need to think more broadly about how I can define like where I'm heading. Yeah. And I knew I wanted to be in a helping profession. And I just sort of shift that interest in medicine to an interest in psychology. And I thought this, this really clicked. I went straight from undergrad to grad school at the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, you know, I had identified that kids and families, that was sort of a fascinating space for me. Um, I, I was always curious, how is it that, you know, the same two parents could raise two people who turned out so, so different. My sister, who's three years older than me, is uh-huh. just so different from me. And I, I just thought family dynamics were quite fascinating. But going through my program, what I thought was even more fascinating was every opportunity where psychology seemed to intersect with law. Yeah. Every case, every issue that seemed to bring both of those disciplines together in some way, it felt like it was such an awkward juxtaposition. And that really, I guess I made reference to being an interpreter. I sort of felt like somebody needs to be the interpreter here. Somebody needs to be bridging these disciplines in ways that are, you know, pro-social, in ways that that really enhanced the well-being of, of kids. That was my primary interest. I, I often worried that as a psychologist, I was doing all this work with kids and families, but the people who were having the greatest impact on their lives were judges and lawyers who didn't seem to know very much about what they should be doing, right. or at least what the law should be doing. And so I thought, you know, I, I would go to court and I was super excited, but I would go to court as sort of a researcher. Like, this is really fascinating. Yeah. It's, it was like, uh, traveling as an anthropologist into a whole other world. And I didn't know that language. And yeah. I want to know this. I need to know this language. I need, I need to know the rules that these people are, are operating under. So why not go to law school? Like, it just felt like it's just adding on a couple more years <laughs> after, after graduate school. And sure enough, really, I mean, after, so what, six years of graduate school, you know, three years of law school didn't feel like too much, right. although it was areas that people would say, oh, you know, law school is really hard. Like, are you sure are you sure you could do that? I applied and I, I didn't even have in mind, I mean, at some point in graduate school, it's called the Boulder model. It's the teacher, researcher, practitioner model okay. that is inculcated pretty early that, you know, you're going to carry all of these hats. You'll be a researcher, a practitioner and a teacher. So you're being sort of groomed early as a colleague to be faculty. So that wasn't new for me to have that on my horizon. Right. But law teaching is a whole different other animal and a very different path that you take to get there. But I still was borrowing that model of selecting a graduate program where I would find my mentor and, and be groomed in that way. I brought that and transposed that into law. Yeah. I, you know, when I applied to law school, I was literally individually reaching out to professors to say, hey, I'd really like to work with you. I mean, it's, it's just to me, it's sort of laughable now. And one of them wrote back to say, I think you, you definitely should come here. Like it would, yeah. it would be wonderful. And if you are coming to town, please come to my house. I'd love to, to chat with you. Yeah. She made her house for breakfast. And we had a lovely conversation about law teaching, about the law school experience. Mm-hmm. She just made this whole experience so appealing 
that that's what sort of sealed the deal. And that's how I ended up at the University of Pennsylvania. Oh, that's awesome. So is, is this professor uh, what influenced you to then be a professor yourself in the, in the law school? I credit, I credit Barbara Woodhouse, who is now retiring from Emory. Um, I credit her for, yeah, for all of this. Uh, she, well, maybe I should credit really Jay Austin, uh, who was the Dean of Admissions at Penn at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, who was really thoughtful and very persuasive um, and very, I think, um, very generous in getting funding available yeah. um, to make that happen. But it was all of that in combination that drew me to Penn. Yeah. And Barbara really, to her credit, she really did everything that she said she would do at that breakfast to help me enter into law teaching. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's how this happened. I, I mean, I traveled through law school. First year was hard because I, I had to remember to be moored, right, to the reason I was there. And right. it's easy to be unmoored when you're just going through the motions of all of those required bar classes, et cetera. Right. But, you know, having a relationship with this person allowed me to stay attached to issues that, you know, the, the reason I came to law school. Right. And I was able to sort of stay on that path. And I mean, there's a lot to cram in there between graduating and getting to Loyola, but I yeah. had the fortune of crossing paths with people who said, you know, you should you should consider. It's, it's a really great place. My colleague at the time, I was teaching in the clinic at the University of Michigan, the same clinic where I had served as a psychological consultant when I was in grad school. I went back and was now teaching there. Yeah. And my colleague at the time was the former director of the Civitas uh, Child Law Clinic. Okay. And he said, I think you'd really, I think you would like the people. I think you'd like just the place. I think you would like how they work. Um, yeah. You know, you should consider. And, you know, once, once I met my future colleagues, it was almost impossible to say no. I don't know if you've had any interaction with Nina Appel, our former dean. She was the dean. Me. Uh, yeah, it, it, it really was just wonderful. And when I came, there wasn't much emphasis on mission. Yeah. Uh, I, I was never asked to think about what it meant for me to be a member of a Jesuit institution. Right. I didn't know it. I had never crossed paths with Jesuits before. I, right. I had no idea what Ignatian pedagogy meant. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the case, Marcus, for a good, I'd say, I don't know, eight, nine years, 10 years of yeah. my time at Loyola. Okay. And is that, um, do you think the school, um, and understanding this is, you know, your perception and not certainly the position of the school, but were the, do you think they were perhaps just trying to separate themselves from sort of the church and just say, no, no, no we're law school. You should come here and have a great time. Or it was just because as things happen and over the years, just mission falls to the wayside because there's so many things about the operation of a law school and trying to get people here. You know, I, I'm not, I think it's both and, right? I mm. think and it's possible that we're leaving things out as well. But right, like, right. I think there's an unease across the board among all law schools to sort of think about how a religious identity might shape the mission of the law school or what happens under there, under that, right. under that roof. 
And I, I think, you know, maybe at the time that the folks who were recruiting me, maybe at the time that they were recruited themselves, it wasn't part of the process. Like it wasn't part of the, you know, it, it wasn't a filter or a lens through which we they saw recruiting. Right. It would be difficult then to sort of resurrect that. Uh, right. Like during the role right. of being, or of recruiting people, right? If it's not part of your recruitment, it really has to be done with some intentionality. Right. And I don't think in any way that Loyola is unique in its the the way in which mission is it's present, but maybe muted, right? It's present insofar as the law school has often said, well, we are Jesuit. And for us, that means we embrace social justice, right? Which, right, you can see me smiling. I would, I would dare say that Every law school right, should be right concerned with social justice and should probably reflect on how central that is to all of the work that they do. Right. So I don't know if that necessarily makes us unique, right? but that was sort of as far as mission would go, I guess, yeah. for the time yes. I was there. And, and I think at some point that must have been communicated all the way back to Rome. <laughs> uh, there is, you know, there were at the time a few years ago, 28 American colleges and universities that would define themselves as Jesuit, that had that as their identity. Yeah. And the Society of Jesus, for whom education is their ministry, that is their mission, is education from the beginning, did want to query how is mission alive in your educational institution? Right. And, you know, to their credit, right, I mean, there's a lot of history here that maybe that could be another podcast, right? Um, <laughs> and the spiritual exercises, mm-hmm. the spiritual exercises, this practice, this practice of prayer, this practice of sort of centering the presence of God, this practice has sort of given birth to lots of other practices that are not necessarily uh, religious or, or prayer, prayer yeah. based, right? right. So the spiritual practices gave us the, the daily examine. So Jesuits practice daily, yeah. I think multiple times daily, this, a method of sort of checking for the presence of God. Right. That examine is something that we carried over into a practice of self-reflection as an institution. So yeah. all American Jesuit, uh, yes, American Jesuit colleges and universities we're all asked to do a mission priority examine, meaning reflect on how mission shows up for you in the work that you do. Like think about all the work that universities do in terms of teaching students in the classroom, research and you know things that impact the community, governance within the university, right. every aspect. Um, schools were asked to reflect on how much is what that thing is, how much is that influenced or impacted by, by mission. Right. And, and the very first question was actually, do you wish to remain? Do you identify and do you wish to remain? a Jesuit institution. And one school actually said, no. Um, Reflecting on this, the message that comes up for us is no. And so they're out. And now we're 27 and not 28. You're right. That's that's impressive. I assume that school had such a core identity of who they were that they just recognized what their core was was not Jesuit, or at least not enough to maintain a relationship with the you know, from a research perspective, Marcus, I would love to know 
what did that look like and yeah. how, right? Cause it seems very candid, right? And yeah. that given the complexity and the potential loss, like we are as humans oriented to a status quo change requires this other sort of impetus opt out that that does you're right probably require a level of awareness about who you are and a sense that that's not in alignment with what a jesuit institution is identified as as being and so that institution is now to my knowledge, more of a Catholic institution. It's it's an archdiocese school and not a Jesuit school. It's in West Virginia, Wheeling, West Virginia. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so that I and you know I wonder if there were other schools who had sort of maybe not been mission focused sort of at all for a number of years and just sort of were existing as a school. And I guess that's the purpose of the exercise to really examine: Are you living the mission of the Jesuit as a Jesuit institution? And really having to do self-reflection. And there might have been some, I imagine, that were like, yeah, do we want to do this? But we also don't want to say no. And so they just felt sort of forced, you know, the other side of the coin, forced to. You know, it's, it's, it's what's fascinating is, I mean, I don't think the question didn't come out of a vacuum. I think it's a, a realistic assessment that the numbers of Jesuits, so yeah. the number of male priests who are in the position of running these institutions is on the decline sharply. Yeah. And so it is now really, the, the challenge is, how do you get the lay people on campus to own the mission yeah. ways that in the past we had Jesuits doing? And, and there's a whole process of, of formation for those priests that that sort of sorts through all of that. I mean, it's it's a, it's a lifelong process of reflection that, you know, those of us coming into academia, we don't we don't operate that way. That's not how we're approaching our work and now we're being invited to think about how our work can carry on the work that in the past had really been stewarded by Jesuit priests. Yeah. You know, there you if you track the history for example of Jesuit colleges and university presidents, right, who are no longer now formerly Jesuit priests. They they used to be the ones essentially if you have a hierarchy, yeah, were the ones at the top and now you've got an increasing number of schools that have gone the way of hiring non-priests, right? Yeah. Even even women. Yeah. And Ed Loyola being one of them. And it raises the question, yeah. if you are not a Jesuit priest and you are not immersed in this sort of way of seeing the world, can you really carry out this mission? Yeah. And it was it was a prompt for universities to really think about how do we do this work with intentionality? Yeah. And it led to the creation at Loyola of an office for mission integration. Gotcha. And so was this the university? This, so this would have been university-wide, I take it. So the university has um, an office uh, that it's actually in the president's cabinet. This is how high up the position is. So we have a vice president of mission integration, and we are now on VP number two. The first VP was a faculty member called out of retirement to serve in this role. And she did a wonderful job to sort of help kind of define this office. And we now have Claire Noonan, who we brought from Dominican um, who is really, I think, revitalizing, uh, just adding vitality right. uh, to the 
to the challenge of inviting people to think individually yeah. as schools, as departments, what does mission mean? You're right. At present, there are only two schools at Loyola University, Chicago, yeah. that have someone tasked with thinking about how mission is integrated yeah. into discipline. So yeah. me at the law school, yeah. John Hart at this, the medical school. So it's nice that, you know, they're really trying to, um, as they're turning out the next uh, generation of professionals in these two fields, how to to align the mission. And I think it, and, and certainly in both of the two, in those two professions specifically, having an alignment with the Jesuit mission, whether or not you're religious, like myself, I'm not uh, particularly religious, but reminding yourself to to think about how your actions sort of affect the broader community and and specifically those the the lesser the those who have the least among us among us it's, it's referred to as a preferential option for the poor mm. you know and maybe in a more secular framework it's centering the most marginalized yeah. center our work um on the needs of those at the margins of society yeah. which again so thinking about when I'm working and I'm writing on behalf of the needs, the interests, the rights of transgender kids, mm -hmm. that's who I'm putting into that box, right? I, I put those families and those folks in the space of people who are on the margins, on the who have been marginalized and who are um, who are being oppressed. Yeah. And my, you know, my work calls me to direct my attention um, there. Yeah. And that that's what I do. And I see it as entirely consistent with mission. But I can imagine that some people are really kind of surprised, right, to learn that the dean of mission, that that's, that's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I do right. That. So I know you stepped into your role in 2020. So when did the university undertake this mission review? Oh. Um, um, I think it might have been 2017, okay. maybe. 2018. Then subsequently, right, having in fact had that thing under our belt, like we, as an institution, we went through this process that's normally very individualized. Right. When we had to or were invited to reflect on how has our commitment to anti-racism yeah. been sort of ingrained in the work that we do? Yeah. Not surprisingly, it was a racial justice examen that we went through. Right. Uh, in all of schools and departments were once again asked to convene, but with an intentional focus on racial justice. How is racial justice showing up in the way that you, you know, the classes you offer, the way you support your students, your relationships with your colleagues? And so, this was university-wide also? This was university-wide, and this was in 20, 2020, either fall of 2020 leading into 2021, but it's what gave rise to, for example, our Institute for Racial Justice. Yeah a formal role for Amy Christensen, who I cannot remember her title, but she's the one who sort of guided the gathering of people's individual reports from their schools and departments on this racial justice examen. Okay. But it's also, um, you know, the timing of that was very much aligned with our decision at the law school to revise our mission statement, to make our commitment clearer. Yeah. Uh, and, and less, well, just to make it clearer and more intentional. Yeah. No, that's fair. So in the context of your position, 
uh, as the Dean of Mission Innovation. And I'm saying it right, innovation, right? Mission Innovation, and that was truly um, meant to not uh, step on. And I don't know what, there's a VP of Mission Integration, and I think it was truly just to stay within lanes so there's no confusion. Mm-hmm. Innovation, as opposed to Mission Integration, right. Mission Innovation is tasked with integrating the mission. So that's how I define my work. It's not, yeah. it's not to innovate, but to integrate. <laughs> yeah. And so how, before I even ask that question, I guess I'll start at the very base. Because you were in, in academia, you know, from K all the way up through KJD, uh, but you got your PhD first. And so you really understand what it is to be in academia from all sides and in multiple levels. So for you, what, how has academic freedom conceptualized and, and shown up in, 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 actual, in actuality for you? It's funny because, so are you asking me to go back in time? Because certainly I think I would always start the story most recently with yeah. what I said with you earlier about my own scholarship. Like yeah. My, yeah. my ability to, to support my scholarship with the funding, backing, and support of this institution. That's fair. Yeah. That makes is, is to me emblematic of that's what academic freedom looks like. That when I teach um, about children's rights, you know, I'm including in that uh, an inquiry into rights of identity, including yeah. right, the right of transgender kids and uh, gender diverse children um, to have their identities, right, honored in law and, and in practice. Yeah. And to be able to say that in a classroom and to be able to say that in writing and have, you know, when you're writing these articles, your institution's name appears right under that. Right. right. That to, that to me is academic freedom. I see. Um, but as a, you know, as a student, because it, it's not just, you know, academic freedom is you also have it. Right. right. You, you have it. I have it. It's, it's it is shared. And I think that I appreciate that Mr. Langhofer at the discussion was intentional about saying this is not, you know, unilaterally something that belongs only to the person standing at the podium. Right. I mean, I have I have been in uh, classrooms where, you know, as a student, I've been in classrooms where I've heard from professors, you know, views that I vehemently disagreed with. Uh, I, you know, you could imagine a psychologist going to law school and then having to take crim law from a psychologist who is a law professor, but hearing a very different interpretation of, you know, criminal behavior. Uh. I mean, to me, again, right, I, I respect that this is somebody who has studied, worked, he's consulted with, uh, you know, legislators. And so it wasn't, he wasn't pulling from the ether a different theory, right. but he was pulling to me a theory that I thought was definitely assailable. Yeah. You know, maybe in my role as a student, I wouldn't be able to really bring it, right, with the vigor yeah. that a colleague could in the yeah. Uh, you know, at an academic conference. Yeah. But I was okay. That conversation. Hearing. And part of it, again, you know, I hadn't really made these connections, Marcus, but when I tell you that I've been, you know, an observer from the earliest parts of my life, part of doing that is also just continuously gathering information. Yeah. I am fascinated by what makes people tick, by what makes people believe what they believe, 
what make what drives some people to hold certain views or act in certain ways. Yeah. I'm fascinated. So I want to hear, I want to hear what you have to say. Right. And I don't know if that's a, a, a very sort of loose and sloppy way of defining what academic freedom looked like for me. Yeah. But to the degree that the professor at the front of the room was speaking with some sort of credibility right. in their domain. Right. To me, that is what academic freedom looks like. It wasn't that my crim law professor was, you know, spouting thoughts and opinions about something outside of the broad parameters of criminal law, right? right? Things that touch on criminal law. And I think to me, that feels like that's what academic freedom is. It isn't the freedom to simply, in the, the, to sort of use your status as an educator. Yeah. Or a student, yeah. sort of raise your hand and simply just share your opinion, you know, writ large, right? Uh, in ways that can be completely unmoored from reality, <laughs> right? Unsupportable in science and, you know, divisive, like purposefully divisive. I, I don't think that is academic freedom, right? But the ability to put forward, right, into the whatever that public domain is, a well-reasoned or well-grounded belief that you may have based on your research and understanding of some body of knowledge, Right. that feels like academic freedom. Yeah, that's fair. So it's really coming from a, a place of not necessarily expertise, but having a well-founded uh, opinion that you are sharing, as opposed to just sort of speaking in manners or or using terms frankly right that are that students may find objectionable mr langhofer used the example of that case i don't know if you were in the room at the time but he brought up one of the cases that they were representing a oh, fact yeah. and the way in which he framed it which was probably omitting many 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 <laughs> right correct i could not i could not push back against that right. i i you know if, if he's saying this professor went to a conference now a conference with probably a very purposeful ideological bent right went to a conference and said i have looked at the science and the science tells me this is what we should be doing with kids around the topic of gender identity yeah look at what i'm going to tell you the science says the tavistock clinic was closed you know this work is is questionable we don't know the long-term results of x y right. If that's what you're basing it on, okay, I can push back on that and tell you, actually, the state of the science is evolving. Right. And let me show you what the new research is continuing to show. Right. And if you're, I mean, this think again about um, standards of evidence, right? right. Uh, and I'm, I hope this is taking me way back. I'm not a litigator, so I'm not using the rules of evidence often. But um, when we're talking about uh, like expert testimony, when we're thinking about I'm thinking about the Daubert standard, the Fry standard, but yeah. we're thinking about when we should accord some body of knowledge and some person expertise. It's with a sense that it has gained some consensus, right? In the, whatever the uh, discipline in question is in medical science, in, uh, you know, forensic science, in psychology. Yeah. And I would have to say, I, I'm sort of using that same concept when I'm pushing back to say that is a fringe view, right? The view that you are purporting to be the truth right. is actually a fringe view. And the consensus of the 
social science community is this, right? And I would put forward what what I believe the science to say. Yeah, no, that is that is certainly that makes sense. In undergrad, I don't think academic freedom was really. I was I sat on the university's tenure and promotions committee. That was the only context within that I heard academic freedom used because folks were defending the work they were doing and they were like, man, plus I have academic freedom to sort of study what I want to study. And that was sort of the context. But like in law school so far, it has seemed that academic freedom can be used as a as a shield for sort of any con- any almost any conduct within the classroom and that's where i and that's why i wanted to do this episode and really ask like what is academic freedom because i've only ever seen it used as a shield in the situations like he described again as he described it it makes sense for that to have academic uh, academic freedom protection but if he were describing it you you know purposely using derogatory terms et cetera, et cetera, it'd be the terms and things that yeah. I think push it past the, the 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 form of or the the protection of academic freedom, and I think that's where I've seen it used problematically as a shield for problematic terms used within the classroom or problematic action. And so, rather than saying, "Oh, perhaps I messed up," they're like, "Well, academic freedom, boom, it is what it is," you know, uh, and yeah. then it leaves a lot of hurt feelings. And that is where. I, I would hope that our method of teaching, our understanding of our role in relationship with students would guide how we would resolve those tensions. Yeah. That because Ignatian pedagogy really does, it doesn't, you know, and this is the thing that is so frustrating in law school, especially you can imagine as a psychologist going to law school in the, you know, 90s, there wasn't you know, like critical race theory was sort of, you know, kind of in it, not nascent, but it it certainly wasn't mainstream. And so we weren't really, even critical legal studies, right? It wasn't introduced to students, even though my colleagues were probably, or not my colleagues, my professors at the time were probably debating the merits of it, but we were getting the message that law is neutral, right? that these opinions are entirely neutral. They're not in any way influenced by bias, as if judges are machines. They somehow go through this process of being stripped of all humanity. And we just look at facts as they are facts. Completely maddening for me, because it just doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense. It's it's completely, and it's a purposeful fiction. It's not that we just landed there. We wanted people to believe that because it, it reifies the idea then that there's only one truth. Right. And the truth comes through this mechanism of, you know, it, it's not filtered in any way. It's just the objective truth right. represented on paper. Yeah. I totally, from the beginning, thought that that was bunk. And then I end up in a community that has that sort of baked into the way that we teach or right. the way that we are at least invited to teach. Because right. not everybody, I think, thinks of themselves as practicing Ignatian pedagogy or, or, or even familiar enough to say that it shapes how they teach. Right. One of the tenets of Ignatian pedagogy is that you bring yourself into the into this study. Right. I bring myself and my students bring their selves. Right. That creates the context within which we are learning. Yeah. I have to understand how your life experience 
is going to shape how you react to, interpret, make sense of, apply, reshape, redefine the rule of law. Right. And I have to be able to be humble enough to offer up that my life experience shapes how I, you know, how I move through interpreting this law such that I can teach it to you. Right. And so it's, it's very, it's dynamic in that way. And it, it really asks you to be reflective, to make space for that, right? Some people call that DEI, right? <laughs> right? When you're saying we're going to take into account your experience, allow that to be a valid filter through right. which this educational learning experience will happen and we'll all be richer yeah. because we all have various different perspectives that we're bringing. Yeah. But if there is an experience, an identity, or a context that is purposefully, you know, ousted or or erased or um, punished or stigmatized right. in a way that interrupts the learning. We we're gonna have to stop and sort of reflect on that, right? So if I'm teaching about the history of racism in the United States, and I'm I'm going to intentionally use language that's intended to, you know, sort of sensationalize, I guess, aspects of history. Yeah. I'm gonna actually want to be in conversation with people whose life experience has been directly impacted yeah. by that language yeah. to see. Is this going to impact your participation and your presence in this relation, this learning relationship? And if it is, let's talk about A, what that is. Let's talk about other ways in which we can make sure we are still in solidarity with one another. Right. We'll figure out how to go forward. But I do think it is like having, um, I mean, I'm talking to you in my kitchen and I'm thinking about how many family meetings we have had in our family, you know, but it's like having a family meeting yeah. in the classroom. That's fair. And and so I guess on the flip side of that, how sort of both in your role as the Dean of Mission Innovation and as a faculty member, how if a faculty member looks at things very differently than you, right, they aren't too terribly interested in how someone approaches the law that is being taught in the classroom from their personal experience. They're just like, well, this is the black letter law. Yeah, we'll talk about these cases like in property, you know, there's a plethora of cases that can be talked about that might trigger uh, or might necessarily discuss either in terms that are uh, outdated or just in a manner that um, can, you know, leave people feeling a certain certain way. And I can't think of the case. There's a, a case we studied in property. Um, and I'll, I'll probably like voice over uh, with the actual case and like break in and say, this is the case I'm talking about. But uh, so I'll look it up. But it's a it was like. Um, Wasn't it the racial covenant case? Well, so there is that one. And that's the, the racial covenant case. But then there's also one from like the beginning of the country. It was one of the first. Um, it was during I want to actually say it was like during the first Supreme Court, their first term. Um, but it was a land dispute between two parties one had gotten it through inheritance from their father and another one or they gotten it through inheritance from like their father or their uncle who had bought it from a native native american um tribe and then the other party had gotten it through a land grant from the united states um and the grandfather who was passing it down the father or grandfather or uncle whoever was passing it down through inheritance he had bought it prior to the united states being the United States. And so, you know, the whole case is just talked about how 
the difference between Native Americans and the British and how, and I, I, it almost put the sheen on it to say, oh yes, they were talking about the cultural differences between the two. They were, but in, in very different uh, uh, terms. And that because of those differences that the Native Americans could not have sold the land because they had occupied, they occupied the land, but they didn't own the land. Sort of tied to the, the, the idea that Native Americans collectively owned their property. And so because there were no individual property rights, they couldn't sell the land. And then it was the land of the United States anyway. But in those sort of conversations, I imagine there might be, you know, folks would really want to talk about the racial aspect of the case uh, because it's hard to read the case without recognizing the very real racial application and racial thoughts of the time as it pertained to Native Americans. But there might be professors who have no interest in in sort of discuss, talking about that, the racial aspect and simply saying this was the outcome of this case and that's that and sort of move on. So how do you, I guess, as an institution and in your role specifically, how do you deal with professors who approach things that way without trying not to bring any of that in? You know, I wish I were expert in being able to hand people, right? Yeah. like a toolkit, <laughs> because I will, I, I mean, I, and I'm maybe making a very generous assumption of all law professors that they really want students to, to master the basics and to be able to continue to wrestle with the margins, right? Be right. You know, I, I used this analogy earlier this week to say, you know, one of the reasons why I accepted even an invitation to be in dialogue is because where there is friction, there's there's something rich to discuss. And I think there is some friction, an approach that prioritizes people's individual life experiences, their identities, et cetera, and decisions that would prioritize pure academic freedom, right? The ability to sort of decide for yourself and only yourself right. how you're going to move through uh, through uh, the curriculum. Right. I... All, all I can do is invite, right? And there's a reason, it's funny, I'm going to circle this back to you saying, and you're not the only one at all. I'm not particularly religious, right? Yeah. And yet, I mean, it's so funny. So people who come to visit you, perhaps, maybe not at Loyola, I wonder if they're struck when you walk into the building, yeah. right? You see Mother Teresa on your left. Yeah. And you, you see Jesus, like, right away. <laughs> right. And you see, you know, you see saints and you, like, it's it's pretty hard to not see it there. And it's yeah. there, but it's there as an invitation. Like, there's a reason why you weren't from day one told, you know, Catholicism is really the way, you know, we are, we are Catholic and we should, you know, this is what Catholics do. And this is why Catholic doctrine is so good. And, right. Right. You know, but there's an invitation for you to be thinking about how am I impacted by what I'm learning and how am I motivated to go out into the world and promote social justice, right? How am I tasked with making the world, right, a, a more just place, right. particularly concerning the poor and the, and the marginalized, right? So in a sense, you are invited to be part of this mission yeah. but you're not commanded to do it in a certain way. Yeah. I think that same sort of ethos applies to how people decide to teach. So I invite my colleagues to think about how their work can be infused with mission. How can you 
particularly given the concerns and the intentionality around bringing identity into the classroom that Generation Z has. Yeah. How can you adapt maybe ways of teaching that had in the past stripped aspects of identity from the from the syllabus? Right. How do you bring that back in in a way that validates people's experiences, helps them to connect to the material, yeah. and inspires them to do the work that we think they ought to be doing in the world? Right. Yeah. And so changing the mission statement of the law school really just kind of made it clearer that what we want is for you know, our definition of social justice is to, to, to interrupt, right, oppression, yeah. to, to, to dismantle systems um, of racism. Yeah. That the way now, now we have to really ask ourselves, what are the ways in which we are teaching you so that you can do that better? Right. And so we try, I try to just make those connections clearer, yeah. that when you take some time in whatever way you can, when you take some time to make space, to make those connections clear, right? You are inviting people to think about their own agency as social justice advocates. Like if we don't bring that into the classroom, it's gonna be hard to expect you to do that after you graduate. Right, yeah, no, that's fair. And, and sort of, and on the other side of that then, so, and one thing that I, um, one of my takeaways, uh, you had talked about how academic freedom um, is not just a, it's not just a, a freedom of the professor. It's also a freedom of, uh, of the students. And so on the flip side of that, how do you, uh, if you have, how have you counseled or just talked to, or how would you encourage students who are perhaps either because of a negative experience or because of a, a very positive experience in the classroom, outside of the classroom, or just by nature of, uh, their generation wants to be that social warrior, that racial justice warrior, the, the, gender affirming warrior, whatever the, 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 whatever warrior someone is trying to be. And part of that is, is feeling like they need to dismantle systems within our institution, um, within the school, how, like, what, I guess, what is the student side, the student perspective of the sort of <laughs> idea of academic freedom and how do they approach it? Um, again, I think, I think without being as mindful as I'm becoming about yeah. nation pedagogy, my teaching has always been um, relational yeah. in the sense that, you know, even my big classes, I'm inviting students to also shape the learning that's happening. I don't have an ideological agenda mm -hmm. to indoctrinate you with, but I can't also erase how my life experience shapes how I have interpreted this material on the page. Right. But for students, you know, and I teach in these areas that touch on relationships. So I've been really lucky to teach family law, to teach torts, right? right. How we resolve disputes in relationships that are, right, uh, resulting in harm. Right. I have really enjoyed when there are students who represent the, the tensions in the law, you know, especially in family law, that really does reflect this attempt to bring together various ways in which we define that most intimate space of relating to people, right? Everything from sex 
to, you know, to marriage, to parenting. It's just so right there and so personal. We, we tend to bring, right. We bring our faith perspective. We bring our morals to bear in this area of the law. And so conversations about why the law is the way it is or what tensions are at play in this law half, you know, they're, they're enriched when people can say, but as a, you know, as a Catholic, you know, divorce is still very stigmatized in, in my, you know, faith belief. Yeah. And then to have other folks saying in my sort of worldview, sex outside of marriage is not wrong. Right. And so the law should support those relationships like married relationships. I mean, those are the tensions that I want to come into the classroom and I will, I will go to the mat to, to make space for those conversations to happen. What I am finding over the course of time is that my students who represent the conservative view are the ones who are the least apt to speak so much so that when they do raise their hand and contribute, I have gone so far as to email them to say, thank you. That was awesome that, you know, that's the kind of class contribution I would love to see, you know, thank you for enriching our perspective about this issue. Right. The response I got from that student was so disheartening. Um, they didn't want to be named. They didn't want me to share the email. I understand why. And they right. said, thank you for calling that out. But that was the last time that I will be speaking in class or last time I'll be speaking in class in a way that shares my, my viewpoints. Yeah. Um, I have seen my some of my peers, you know, blasted on social media and just paying a huge price for participating in class discussions in ways that reveal their, you know, ideological leanings, right? right? So I've never in my entire history of teaching family law for almost two decades now had anybody say, you know, my sincerely held religious beliefs um, define marriage in a very particular way. That is that is how I was raised to read religious doctrine, or yeah. that's how that's how I embrace religious doctrine. And I just believe, you know, based on my faith perspective, yeah. that this is this thing, yeah. that issue comes into law and becomes a legal issue, but it does touch on, you know, personal, yeah. personal stuff. regardless, nobody, nobody will. And I, and I, I worry that my law student's ability to harness a good and fashion, right. A good legal argument yeah. is, is diminished by the absence of that perspective. So I often find myself bringing that perspective in, but it's hard because it's also not reflective of my worldview. Right. Courts, it's the same thing. I think, I, actually, I'm going to use another family law example. Yeah. I had the pleasure of stepping outside of my Loyola bubble for a little bit. I, I got to teach family law at Northwestern for one semester. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time that students were pushing back about this, you know, a a big emphasis in family law is privatizing obligations. Like, why do we love marriage? Because once you say I do, we have now privatized some obligation that the state no longer has to bear, right? Taxpayers are off the hook. And I love that this student from the back kept saying, but why don't we have social safety nets that provide, you know, she she kept pushing the boundaries of, of the way that we think about family law that all I could say was, and and it was it was not raised as just a question. It was a criticism of the way in which I was narrowly framing the problem. And I had to 
stay humble and yeah. say, <laughs> yeah. what a great point that is. Yeah. Who is that? Look at how this rule is operating to reify that message. That is true. Why don't we have a, you know, and it invites this other perspective. And so that's, I think for me, how I try to encourage my students to exercise academic freedom. If you see that something's missing, you raise your hand and you ask the question of why is this not, right? But it, it does have to be, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a sincere question. It's not, I want to, you know, maybe it's crass to use this in place of a sincere question. It's not the opposite, but trolling, right? It's not, yeah. it's not that I'm just trolling and I want to say something provocative. It's, right. I want to critique what you are presenting to me as the status quo. Right. And that can happen in lots of places. It happens yeah. all over torts. It happens in con law. It happens in crim law. I think that's the way in which students are able to express their version, right, of academic freedom. That is fair. And so how then, uh, and I know this sort of steps outside of necessarily academic freedom, but really creating, though, uh, I guess it goes in tandem at, with academic freedom at least in, within the context of certainly how it's come up in our in the school about people needing and wanting to feel safe in the classroom. But so how do we create the space where people feel safe while at the same time fostering a, 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 an ability to have a conversation, a broad range, a, a broad conversation on any particular issue? So having someone speak in class and say, well, it is my sincerely held, closely held religious belief that marriage looks a certain way and that's the way I've always been taught and I still believe in and closely hold that. Uh, I would imagine there might be students um, who obviously would find that uh, you know objectionable. How do how does how is that space created to both have that dialogue without sort of a, a member of the LGBTQIA community feeling um, not necessarily attacked but just you know perhaps unsafe or feeling enter or you know insert any word there from that comment or from the conversation because it's one thing if somebody you know throws a bomb out there and that's it but like especially if it's a engaging in the conversation as okay that's a closely held uh, religious belief and then having a full conversation about well why is it not why is it you know or going back forth whatever that conversation looks like and i think that's where then students who are gay or bi or, um, or whatever the sexual orientation and identity might feel some type of way about questioning definitely. their right to marry definitely you know it is again I, I it's hard to separate myself yeah my own experience from what I think should happen in the classroom, right? Yeah. As if I don't have the objective resolution to that. Let's just let's just okay. put that yeah. right. Fair. But, but I I hope that I'm never in a position of having to work backwards to set the stage for those conversations to happen. Mm. Meaning, I have crafted a syllabus that's very intentional mm. like, about framing how conversations will happen in our classroom. That's so we have norms that will, I think, lay some of the groundwork for those yeah. difficult conversations to happen. Yeah. It may not take the sting away, right, from your own identity being held out there for debate. Yeah. And on some level, as somebody whose identity is always held out there, right, <laughs> I... I have to recognize that I've probably become less sensitive 
Yeah. To the, it might be that I'm less sensitive to the actual pain it causes. Also, right, as an ally, but not a member. Yeah. The LGBTQ community, it, it, it sits just outside of my own, right? Right. Identity. But I, I have to also balance in resolving whatever we're going to resolve. I have to balance the overarching aim of helping my law students be the sharpest, most effective, thoughtful advocates that they can be. Yeah. And part of what we need to do is put that thing yeah. in a legal context yeah. to the degree that we can, right? And I and I, I want to acknowledge the reality that, wow, you know, that sentiment, that statement can feel deeply wounding, right? Yeah. The people in this room, people who we who are in our lives. Yeah. And we know that that sentiment shows up in legal opinions right. and it shows up in actual legal cases that we right. will be asked to participate in. Yeah. How do we approach this, right? And so it also have to be, it, it forces you to have to really, really, really be on your toes yeah. to know in advance what you can harness, right? So if, if that were the subject, and a student were bold enough to say, like, these are my religious beliefs, and I think morals should guide how, right, it's, this is behavior that was called out as immoral at some point in time. Yeah. I would have to have done my homework to know what else could I also point to mm -hmm. as, quote unquote, immoral that, yeah. that was completely a product of patriarchy and white supremacy and all yeah. of this, right? I want to be able to show that, you know, the the wearing pants us right mm -hmm. to re-examine and to really unpack what we mean by immoral but yeah. i am for sure also going to be armed with justice scalia's dissent in uh lawrence v texas yeah right justice scalia's dissent was prescient for obergefell right yeah and, and it was asking the question what role does morality play in lawmaking, right? And and that is a rich question that we should be yeah, asking, right? Yeah. And it's going to impact everyone because we don't share the same moral beliefs, right? And you know what's the source of your moral beliefs? So it, yeah. it invites you to be really sort of mindful about not just personal views, but when those personal views then get translated into a legal debate like a legal case right i don't know how you can adopt a you know a, a close your eyes close your ears mindset right yeah. this is what we do and i i don't mean to in any way say safety is not part of right belonging is not part of yeah. the process of learning that's yeah. that is that's woven into the way that we learn yeah. but i have an aim to also help you right remain as intact as you can through this process yeah. so that you can, you can harness, in fact, that thing that is like that thing that you feel has been wounded, yeah. that thing that has been wounded. I want you to be able to turn that into your advocacy. I yeah. want you to, and I want you to be sharper than your adversary. Yeah. And I don't care who your adversary is, right? I, I mean, I, I have to be sort of agnostic in some, yeah. but that's almost impossible, right? As a Black woman, yeah. I, I'm not agnostic on all issues. Right. 
I do, I have picked a population that I want to champion. Right. Also want you to be, if that is also the cause you are championing, you can only champion that cause when you are excellent at harnessing the tools that we've been given. Right. The tools that we've been given right now are not close your eyes, close your ears and just shout, right? Yeah. It, it's that you need to, you know, tell me what your legal argument would be, right? And your legal argument would be whatever. Right. And, yeah. and let's and let's work with that. If ultimate safety is what people need. Yeah then I would sincerely invite folks to think, is law really the discipline that you want? And not not in a way to say you don't belong here, but really ask, are you going to find fulfillment in in a discipline that's constantly, law is friction. Yeah. We we never see law that's not friction because it's just dormant. Right. Law is friction and it's always going to be friction. Right, yeah. If this is, triggering in ways that are not healthy for you, then we should probably really just be thinking about the arc of your own professional development, that maybe this isn't the discipline, but maybe maybe you want to be enacting change in another way. Right. It's almost like somebody who is completely averse to touching people. Right. right. Could you could you survive medical school? Right, right. I don't, I don't think so. But maybe you could channel that passion into something that you could do. Right. I, I don't. But, but law is friction, and it's always going to be. Yeah. No, that certainly makes sense. And I even so, as a black gay man coming into law school, um, you know, granted, I was older when I started law school. I think I was at the time. I was 30 when I started law school and sort of have been out into the quote real world um, prior to coming back to school, you know, reading through some of these cases and just recognizing that the development of our law development of our country. Right. uh, And in many ways, whether it's criminal law or others have been either developed specifically to exclude black folks or was not developed with black folks or other people of color in mind. And certainly at the times of sort of the foundational laws of this country, gay people were not um, thought about or again, actively um, or actively thought about, but in the opposition uh, when crafting these laws. And so as we study these laws, you know, from 1823, you know, of course, it's not going to have a favorable view of Native Americans or favorable view of Black folks or whatever. But I think that at some level, you just have to accept it. And rec- and, and, and just what you were saying is that reading these cases and knowing these cases and certainly more modern cases and knowing how someone who is in opposition of your rights, how they think and how they're going to approach it is important. Because, you know, I, I always think of it like, the lawyers who who argue Brown v. Board could not have not read Plessy versus Ferguson when they were crafting their their argument and their strategy. Uh, if they were like, no, that case is offensive, I'm not going to read it. They wouldn't have been successful in Brown v. Board because they wouldn't have known, you know, sort of. And maybe that's too simplified of a of an example, but yeah, I certainly think it's. You are, I think, pointing to a call. You know, be a Kagan, be a Sotomayor in writing a dissent in Dobbs, right? Mm. You know, and I've spent a lot of time reading that case because I was getting ready for a symposium. Mm -hmm. 
And to me, it was juxtaposing these issues that were really hard to merge. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I know, I'm gonna take Justice Alito's framework for stare decisis, what he used to sort of shape this Dobbs decision mm -hmm. and apply it to child welfare, child protection. Yeah. You know, this big deal about history and tradition. And I want to talk about how warped the history and traditions are in this other space. He talks about, the, you know, the nature of the original error. And I'm sort of, anyway, I'm, I'm enamored of the way in which both of these, the majority and the dissent, have harnessed history yeah. in their own telling of history right. to move their cause forward, right? right? And yeah, I mean, if if you are someone who is deeply troubled by someone else's fashioning of what the truth is, right? The objective, <laughs> right? In your objective truth, but it can't be it can't be sloppy, right? It's right. got to be. And so you read that dissent and you are able to see, yeah, look at that. The majority is querying how, uh, or at least making assumptions about women being represented at a time when women had no agency, right? Just all of the big glaring holes that you can poke back. Right. You can only poke back effectively if you are sufficiently um, aware. Yeah and understanding of the other side. And right. that, that will forever, I think, characterize the bulk of the work of lawyering. Lawyering, I'm sure, will change over time. Yeah, It won't always be the way that we see it, right? Yeah. But I think a core part of it will always require that you really be a master, not only of your own beliefs and arguments, but yeah. you need to, to do that, you need to know and anticipate every argument on the other side that's going to come at you. Right. Even ones that you find abhorrent, yeah. evil, you know, um, damaging, hurtful, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. No, and that I, that's just, a, that is, I guess, the reality, frankly, of law school is just that, you know, if you are from a marginalized community, there's there will be a time in law school where you will be uncomfortable. Uh, and so it's a question of what you do with that discomfort. Yeah. yeah. I mean, law school is an exploration of history, right? Yeah. I mean, we'd say, oh, look at Dobbs. It's this amateur historians. <laughs> and we don't teach each other how to do history well. But we do do history. We, yeah. we read old cases. We try to make sense of what was, you know, in the air at the time? Yeah. Do the region of the country matter? Does the time period matter? I mean, we're always sort of doing history. Yeah. And sadly, for people who are members of marginalized communities, history has not brought a lot of wins, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, losses. But it's instructive insofar as it helps us to craft what will be, we hope, winning arguments. Right. I don't think we can craft that. In, we certainly can't craft it in an echo chamber. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah, that is certainly fair. So, yeah. no, this is, this conversation has been very uh, enlightening and very helpful for me because gen genuinely, I, when I thought of the, the idea of the, this episode, I was genuinely curious, like, what is academic freedom? Because again, like I said, I've only ever sort of heard it used as a, as a shield from for largely uh, objectionable, objectionable behavior, but I think 
it's clear it's it's there obviously is a line at which there there's a lot that needs to be protected right but then there is a line by which it crosses of course if i think of it like misgendering someone in your classroom purposely uh and continuously is is not, does not fall under what might be considered academic freedom yeah you know and we 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 wrestle with that so to the degree that we all have freedom of thought yeah it's sort of implied in academic freedom. I can't force a colleague yeah. to believe something that they do not believe in. Yeah. What I can invite you to consider is how your primary work as an educator mm. is completely undermined by your insistence on making clear your beliefs in this space, right? right? And yeah. so what we have invited some colleagues into is an examination of what is the compromise? What is the way in which you can center someone's humanity yeah. without sacrificing, right, your freedom of thought? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think people are perfect on it because I think truly it sometimes will slip, yeah. right? If it isn't really something that you've internalized yeah. as like a, a belief. Yeah. But that's how we've sort of tried to reconcile some of those tensions is we cannot compel someone yeah. to adopt an ideology yeah. well, that's belief about, about someone else's experience. But we can ask you to be reflective of the way in which your expression of your beliefs in the classroom may, may be absolutely interrupting with the purpose of learning right that occurs you know I, I think you all heard me i was plucking from uh the superior general of the society of jesus who in one document talking about mission mm -hmm. starts the sentence by saying with all due respect to academic freedom right with all due respect to academic freedom to me signals that it's not an absolute right. and that there are there are places and times when that freedom will be compromised, right? Yeah. Or, or, or in a sense, you will have to yeah. give way yeah. to larger other factors yeah. that are grounded in our values. Yeah. We, we value both, but they have limits. Yeah, no, that's fair. And saying it like that very much puts it in sort of a very legal context, or at least what we do all day in law school, right, is looking at all these rights and although we think of certain rights as sort of largely absolute, at least within the context of American society, but we put limits on even our most sacred, you know, freedom of speech, which is very cogent to this conversation. We still put limits on, on that. So yeah, no, certainly makes sense. Well, this was, yeah, it really was. Uh, and I know you gotta go, I have one final question for you. Do and it's about you. Do you think your parents' experience of being exiled, they didn't just, you know, sort of like, oh, let's move somewhere. They were exiled at specifically. Do you think that shaped your willingness and ability to really want to hear and your, your curiosity about people, all people around you, but certainly in, in, including people who are in opposition to you. That is so interesting. I wonder if that experience, you know, I mean, I, I tell people, <laughs> you know, the stories that were exchanged at my dinner table growing up <laughs> were stories about some of the atrocities that were committed by the United States government abroad. Yeah. Um, the assassination of Allende, um, the assassination of Lumumba. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, these were things that my parents would talk to us about as kids. Yeah. 
Um, so I grew up with very few myths about perfection, right? And I wonder if my parents felt compelled to sprinkle those stories into my childhood to make sure that my embrace of some American myth of exceptionalism would not be cemented right in my brain. I think they wanted me to temper my understanding of the complexity of who people are, right? And I guess in a sense, I I wonder if there is this, you know, not having, for some period of time, not having a country to claim you, right? Really raises questions of like, well, who are you, right? On a fundamental level, who are you when you have no country to which you are a citizen? Right. And it, it sort of brings issues of identity to the fore. I mean, definitely for me, it, it's it's super, super layered. You know, I did my 23andMe um, DNA test um, and my genetic, you know, profile, something like I don't know, 56% of my genetic material hails from Western Europe, right? Yeah. In Haiti, it's it's not less relevant, but there's an understanding that everybody is is mixed in yeah. a way that's more um, accepted, right? On the island than than here in the US. Yeah. Like there's no such thing as the one drop rule. I mean, <laughs> right. so the fact that you care, and so like family gatherings are like every shade, every hue of, of, of everything is in that space. Yeah. And what does that mean in terms of identity? It has always been complex, like nuanced and, and really, really rich and diverse for me. Yeah. And I think maybe that has set me on a path to be, you know, equally curious and open to the diversity of all people. Yeah. And I think about that even in terms of my my own circle of friends Mm -hmm. Um, and that I have friends, you know, truly who's interestingly, many of my closest friends are also the children of immigrants. Yeah. Maybe there's something that draws us together, but to have friends who identify across the racial spectrum. Yeah. So enriched my life, but has continued to feed this curiosity about, Oh, like, is that how you were raised? Like, Oh, those were, the interesting values that you brought from your parents' home country. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that sense of otherness has always been there. And maybe the, the exile piece um, is a reminder that the otherness is sometimes, you know, sort of foisted upon you. I, I, I don't, I don't think my mother's family would have left had they not been exiled. And then my mother's, I mean, it's, it's complicated, but my mother became really active in protesting uh-huh. uh, as a result. Yeah, it, it was actually my mother's political activity yeah. that ended up getting their Haitian citizenship stripped and they ended up losing all their property um, that they had in Haiti as well. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I definitely think being Haitian American has, you know, it's the lens through which I've moved through the world as an, as an other, like never really fitting in one category. And so I, you know, and I will say to people, I, I have learned how to be black. Like I, I identify as black, but I have had to also 
become black. Yeah. Like an, being an American has made me African-American. Right. But I, but I'm, it's not, I don't look back and say that's who I am because that's the generation behind me. Right. When I, you know, when I, when I trace it, 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 it's just not that. Right. So identity has always been kind of front and center. And in fact, I've started to call myself an identity scholar because it's identity that I find really, really fascinating. Yeah. How are we able to use law to expansively legitimize, if you will, right? Using law to legitimize identity. How are we in the context of families? Like that was my work in graduate school was studying grandparents raising grandkids. Yeah. How are these particular families always put on the margin of families, right? So that there are real families and then there are these other families. Right. How gender diverse kids denied, right, this experience that's so central to who they will be in the world. Yeah. I, I guess I find identity just fascinating. Yeah. No, that is fair. Uh, I appreciate your time. Such a pleasure, really. That's all from us here at The Povicate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepovocate at gmail.com. Visit our website, thepovocate.com, for more information on this episode and our guest. The Povocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Palowitz. Our associate editors are Neko Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Professor John Dane and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make the show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Povicate.